We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly chess interview show where we talk with accomplished chess players, authors, and personalities about their lives, their careers, and how to improve at chess. Perpetual Chess is brought to you through the generosity of its Patreon and PayPal supporters and by Chessable.com. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We have another popular return guest joining us this week. Uh, He was on the show in October of 2018, episode 95. And of course, he also was recently on the show, helping me recap Think Like a Grandmaster. And now he's back for another interview. He is a highly respected cognitive scientist with a PhD from Harvard, the co-author of the New York Times bestseller Invisible Gorilla, which is based on a landmark study conducted with fellow chess player Daniel Simons. He's also a USEF master. He published the award-winning American Chess Journal and a few chess books back in the 90s. And he's also working hard on his chess game. He's a chess dad. And with his permission, I would like him to become the official brain correspondent of Perpetual Chess. Chris, how do you feel about that? (laughs) If that means correspondent about the brain as opposed to correspondent with a good brain, then I will accept. Yes, you you are going to be our brain consultant because I'm constantly out of my depth talking about um, best learning practices. Of course, we all try our best and we gather as many anecdotes as we can. But one topic that's come up a lot on 
on this show, as you well know, is the lack of actual data about how to improve in chess. So one of the many reasons I was eager to talk to you again, to interview you again, is we we have so many guests every week suggesting different things. So I just felt like it would be a good time to sort of step back. I know that you're not necessarily like uh, cognitive science is a broad field and we're not going to be asking you about your specialties. Um, but nonetheless, I think you know more than most of us. So um, so why don't we start, Chris, since I know you listen to the show when you when you get a chance, what what has surprised you from other guests um, about or um, about learning methods in chess and sort of the way that chess is being studied in the two years since we last spoke? Uh, well, one thing that's surprising, although maybe it really isn't surprising, but it maybe should be surprising, is that so many people have such different opinions about what you should do to get better at chess. Uh, so I was kind of surprised and, and heartened recently to see some guests or hear some guests say that it's not so bad to study openings. Uh, and in, in fact, um, you know, openings can be very practical. That kind of investment can be very practical. And if you like doing it, some people like doing it, they shouldn't be ashamed of liking it. And, and um, others like, for example, uh, Eric Kislik, who happens to be my own coach, has pointed out that studying openings also helps you learn important structures and mill game plans that flow out of those openings. So it's not all just about memorizing openings, that learning the openings teaches you a lot about, about other parts of the game as well. But on the other hand, some people say end game studies, end game studies. Some people say, you know, drill tactics all the time. Um, and when you ask people those percentage questions, you know, the percentages can vary mm -hmm. quite a lot between what you're supposed to spend. So what what explains, you know, so that interesting that there's sort of like no consensus, right? After even though the game's been around for a few centuries by now, um, there's there's no consensus on on how to get better at it. And I think there are a few reasons for that. One of them is it's just really super complicated. Um, so, you know, getting better at chess is not like getting better at arithmetic or even getting better at uh, sports necessarily. There, there's so many, there's so much to chess and there's so many different skills that are involved, mental processes and skills involved just in the process of, of playing one move, let alone, you know, plotting the trajectory of your improvement and how to spend your time away from the board and so on. So it's, it's kind of like getting better at life. You know, it's so complicated that it's almost like the question, how do you get better at life? Or how do you become a better lawyer, right? Like there could be many different paths to becoming a better lawyer. There's not necessarily one single way of doing it. You know, spend 30% of your time, you know, reading Supreme Court cases and 40% right. of your time practicing your oral arguments in the mirror. I don't even know. I'm just making stuff up. But it's a complicated thing and there's probably not going to be one path. People are different is another reason, right? So what's the right path for one person might be the wrong path for somebody else. Not so much because people have different learning styles. I think there's actually not really much evidence that learning styles are a thing. Um, they're a very popular concept among educators and teachers and, and some, you know, learners as well to, to believe that they're a visual learner or, a, you know, an auditory learner or a verbal learner or something like that. Um, people are different in a lot of other ways that are important, too. I think one of the more important ones is, is motivation and, and what kinds of things just naturally attract their curiosity. So if you're really interested in learning about openings, that's probably in a way the most productive improvement thing you can do because you're going to be motivated to do it and you're going to spend time at it and you're probably going to be pretty good at learning it. Um, one of the reasons you probably like to do it is because you're good at learning it and you find it intrinsically rewarding. So there's differences among the learners, right, among the players and in, in, in what to do. And then another one, which some of your guests have mentioned, and I think maybe Jonathan Rousen mentioned it, certainly he talks about it, is, is there, there are different things we talk about when we talk about being good at chess or improving at chess, right? One might be just purely improving our rating and our practical results. And many people measure that by rating, right? Other people have other goals like norms and 
you know, or even beating certain players, you know, their longtime nemesis or best friend or, or who knows what, or their father. Um, and, uh, but there's like different things we could be talking about there. Like there's your chess skill. And I think as Jonathan Rousen points out, like chess is, it, it's really, you know, in certain fundamental ways, fundamental ways, a skill, right? You've got to be able to play good moves. It doesn't matter how much you know about X, Y, or Z in chess, if it doesn't translate into playing better moves and winning the game. Um, he has this great anecdote in, in one of his books about something like, maybe he even told it on your show, but it was the, it, it's the joke about how he said to like his teammates, well, I lost, I lost that game, but I really learned a good lesson. And, and one of them said, it's time to, it's a time to stop learning and start winning. Right. Uh, yeah. You know, there, there's like the skill part of it, but a lot of people are talking also about knowledge. Like they value just having knowledge, like knowing more different kinds of openings or knowing more different structures or being a more universal or complete player or being able to play any opening or any kind of position. And then there's also chess culture, you know, chess history. So, you know, you need to learn different things to learn about, to get better at those. And they might not necessarily make you a better player. Um, in fact, some people argue that many modern players like didn't really grow up necessarily learning the same classics that people like you and me did, but they zoom past us to 27 or 2800 without, right. without devoting that time. So it's, you know, there's a lot, I think it's, it's kind of surprising that we don't really know the perfect, you know, formula or method and, and that we have so much divergent opinion, but it's also maybe not so surprising in light of the complexity of chess and all the different dimensions of it and, and the differences among the, the players themselves. So you could, so the famous William Goldman quote about Hollywood that nobody knows anything uh, applies to chess as well, I guess, <laughs> or well, chess, chess improvement. Yeah, in advertising, they say something like, I know I'm wasting 50% of my budget, but I don't know which 50%. <laughs> That's <laughs> great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're all wasting 50% of our study time. Yeah, exactly. Um, I don't know which 50% of mine is wasted. And, and, and that actually, I think, provides somewhat of an insight, which is you might be making a mistake if you have a too unbalanced diet of chess improvement, right? As long as we don't know what the best method is, and as long as you don't necessarily have any quantitative data about yourself, about what the best method is, like from self-experimentation or something like that, well, then maybe you should have a more balanced diet, you know, and, and do 20% this, 20% that, you know, and, and focus on some of the things that really keep you motivated instead of like really forcing yourself to like learn a certain kind of end game that you really just can't stand to, to think about. All right, that's what I want to hear because I don't want to learn the end game. So, <laughs> well, we don't want to go. We don't want to go like all super nihilist. You know, right. <laughs> either like nothing, nothing matters, or everything's equal, or we have no idea. Because, as you mentioned, I think the science of learning does give us some some ideas for like how to organize our study, even if it's not going to ever tell us openings are better than middle games, or end game studies are better than you know middle game calculation or anything like that. But but there is, I think, there is some some interesting information and, and evidence about how we can use our study time depending on what it is we're trying to focus on learning. Okay, so what what do we know how, about how we can structure our time? Well, I mean, it won't be any surprise that as many guests, and you, you've talked about it quite a bit also, and, and um, you know, many guests have talked about uh, sort of what's broadly known as the science of learning. I think I probably even mentioned it last time I was on, but, you know, um, memory has been one of the most well, memory is not all there is to chess, right? Um, but memory is one of the easiest things to study that's relevant to chess. It's one of the easiest things to study scientifically that is relevant to chess. Um, and it's been studied scientifically for about 150 years now. Um, some of the very first cognitive psychology studies in the, in the, eight, so the sorry, the 1900s were about memory. And um, so as a result, there's been maybe more progress in that area than there has been in, in, in other areas. And it's also believed that sort of the fundamental 
principles and rules of how memory works sort of apply regardless of what material you're trying to memorize. So people who do experiments on memorizing words or, uh, you know, learning um, the procedures for doing arithmetic, let's say, pretty confident that the lessons from those experiments are going to generalize to, let's say, memorizing openings or, you know, learning how to play certain kinds of, of chess positions or end games or, or whatever. So, um, so in some of the, you know, some of the most common principles that everyone alludes to are um, spaced practice. That's like one of the most fundamental one that that one comes at the beginning of the list, usually of, of all the, you know, main conclusions of, of, of science of learning. And um, I mean, for anyone who doesn't know exactly, I, I think various different definitions are given, but um, I, I consulted a recent scientific article on this. And um, the, the definition there is, is that um, uh, space uh, or distributed practice um, uh, gives the benefit of the same amount of repeated studying of the same information spaced out over time will lead to greater retention of that information in the long run compared with repeated studying of the same information for the same amount of time in one study session, right? So if you're going to spend two hours on something, if you spend 20 minutes a day for six days, you know, at the end of that, you will know it better than if you spend 120 consecutive minutes on, on one of those days. Um, it's the same 120 minutes, but spacing it out um, works better. And, and there are various people have proposed sort of neuroscience reasons for that, you know, like what goes on in, in your brain during sleep is one is one candidate. Um, uh, and, and there's uh, other candidate ideas that, um, you know, when, when you space things out, you have to kind of keep on retrieving them and retrieving them each time sort of strengthens them. Whereas if you do it all on mass all at once, you kind of keep it all in more short-term memory and you don't sort of like practice getting it in and out of long-term memory. So there are various sort of theories to explain why that happens. And um, there's probably a lot of merit to those theories, but the basic idea um, I think is important. And, and another qualifier of that, which doesn't get spoken about very much, but um, I think it makes a lot of sense. I, I got from the same article, which is that um, space practice is especially good the longer you have to retain the information, right? So often these things are studied in, in scientifically in the context of students studying for an exam, let's say, or something like that. But but in chess, the exam is infinite, right? The exam is yeah. our lives um, <laughs> as long as we stick with the game, right? Or if we come back to it at an older age, you know, like we'd still like to know some of those combination patterns and and openings and so on, and not have to sort of start from scratch. So the longer you want to retain something, the longer into the future the more beneficial it is to, to space practice, where if you really do just have to cram for an exam, it's not so bad to do it the night before, um, you know, and obviously like the elite players will do a lot of opening prep the morning of the night before and so on. And, and they, of course, they have really good memories for chess, but they also are doing something practical as well. Yeah. I mean, there's so much interesting stuff in there. Yeah. And of course, uh, space repetition, obviously, is a big part of Chessable's business model. And Jakob Agard, who we're going to talk about later, because you went to one of his camps, also mentioned the importance of doing a little bit every day. But as sort of the conversation has continued um, from uh, the, the Woodpecker Method episode that I did with Neil Bruce and my recent interview with Elijah Logazar, um, some of the conversations that were focused more heavily on space repetition as, to pose, as opposed to some of my more general uh, conversations. A couple of topics I feel like I've, I've, I've seen people struggle with, whether it be in comments on Chess Reddit, shout out to them, or on Twitter. Um, and one of them that you sort of alluded to is this idea of learning uh, patterns for like memorizing openings as opposed to learning patterns. 
Um, I think this is one thing that people aren't sure about because the woodpecker method um, has some great tactics puzzles in it and some great anecdotes of people for whom it worked. And we've heard some great subsequent anecdotes for of people from whom it worked, but, but we're not necessarily sure that the science is there, especially because it's, it's just based on tactical patterns that you won't necessarily see again. So does that help your calculation or does it help your memory or we, we just, we're just flying blind or what do you think, Chris? I, I honestly think the woodpecker method, which I had never heard of before I read Axel Smith's book. And, and then I've, I've, I haven't done the woodpecker method. I'm actually thinking of doing it. I think it might be interesting to try it out for myself. And I probably should if I'm going to opine so authoritatively yeah, on we'll it. We'll have to have an emergency podcast when you do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, uh, I won't be able to say anything except repeat some Steinitz combination. Yeah, exactly. I, you know. um, I, I think it's fascinating as a, a proposed method of learning. Um, I, I can't think of anything really analogous to it where the proposal is that you essentially memorize a body of specific examples of something as a way of learning the broader skill right. and memorizing those examples and, and tales. And, and I think to be honest, like once you get to like the seventh round or whatever the terminal round of the woodpecker method is, you're sort of supposed to have memorized all the examples by then. Even if you didn't deliberately try to memorize them, you're sort of supposed to have internalized them almost as though you, you memorized them on purpose. You're supposed to sort of turn it into an act of recognition where you see the position and you're like, oh yeah, these are the moves. Um, and that's my understanding of it. And I think it's it's a fascinating proposal for a, a learning technique, and I would really like to see it tested um, in rigorous ways. It's possible there are analogous research studies in literature where they don't do it with chess combinations, but they do it with something else. Um, but I just haven't, you know, I haven't come across them, although I haven't done a deliberate search for them either. Um, I, I think that the woodpecker method does combine some correct principles from, from learning science. So um, one of them is repetition, obviously, like that's even more fundamental than space repetition is just repetition, right? That's almost so, so common sense that it goes without saying, right? So there's repetition, um, which is important. There's also, um, uh, there's also interleaving. So interleaving means um, uh, you put in a sequence of learning episodes, you put different kinds of things instead of, you know, doing the same thing over and over again. And there are pros and cons to doing it, but it seems to benefit um, retention. So, you know, if I do 10 different kinds of combinations in a row, instead of 10 examples of Bishop takes H7 check or something like that. Um, uh, and so certainly by the way they organize it, right? Like it's, it's all kinds of combinations mixed in. The only sequence, and at least in the book, is historical, right? By historical, by world champions and so on. But then it's all kinds of combinations mixed in. So that's good. And then also another principle of learning is that concrete examples help people learn general concepts. Um, so there you are learning a lot of concrete examples of different kinds of, of combinational themes. Um, and I think that's actually maybe a little more important in chess than, than some authors emphasize. Like we, and I, I I probably made the same mistake myself in thinking about chess. Like I, I used to think like, why would you ever go do the same tactic a second time? Like, couldn't you learn more from seeing even a very similar example of the same theme? But on the other hand, I find myself often in games thinking about specific examples that I've seen in the past. Um, uh, I had to annotate a game for the, the, the Uggard camp. Um, and I was trying to find a good game to annotate. And I realized when I was looking at the game that I had sort of, I remembered that I had based my play in the game on remembering a, a Spassky Fisher game. 
that I had seen, you know, years earlier and probably hadn't looked at in, in ages. And it was from a different opening, but the, the structure was the same and sort of the, the positional idea was the same, you know, and so on. Or at least I took the positional ideas from Fisher and applied them to this position. And I'm not sure I would have been able to do that if I hadn't actually remembered that concrete example of that Fisher-Spassky game. So the Woodpecker method, I think, has a lot of elements that make sense and are consistent with science of learning. But I don't think as a method itself, it's really been evaluated, nor have many other proposed methods for studying chess, for that matter. Right. And that that gets to a, a one of the many good Patreon questions we have for you. But I did just want to drill down on one thing you said before uh, we get to that, which is you mentioned this concept of interweaving, of uh, um, making sure that the tactics are not just all drilling one theme, but are kind of mixed in. Um, so, because that's one, one of the many things that I've heard different guests or I've read different people opine in different directions. Like some people say, focus on a theme and really get it down. Like, you know, get like, especially when they're advising beginners, they might say like, get your pins down, get your forks down, you know, at the, at the very most, most basic level. So do you think it's better to, to do it in a, based on what, you know, to do it in a, um, more randomized order? As I would say for most things, it's probably better to mix them. Okay. So, for example, I if I were a chess teacher and I've taught almost nobody ever to play chess, even including my own son after the first you know few lessons. Um, but if I were a chess teacher, I probably wouldn't want to just show one example of a pin and then move on to a smothered mate and then move on to something else and expect everybody to have grasped these concepts, or to come back to the pin after we did ten other themes and then say, okay, let's do another pin. Like that just does seem a little bit weird and probably a mass of, of examples of the same thing is good for learning the general concept, right? So in order to learn what a pin is, it's probably good to see five or 10 or 20 examples of it and, and what happens, you know, and, and so on. But then after that, I would probably then do more of the interleaving of, of the practice. Um, so I wouldn't start with interleaving, but I'd add in the interleaving later on, especially as we do the practice sort of to build up our general skill as opposed to to learn something specific. Right. Okay. When you're learning a new idea, probably on mass is good. But then when you're trying to build up your general skill or build up your retention, then the interleaving probably becomes more valuable, in my opinion. OK, so it sounds like chess steps might have that one right, because their their puzzles are generally highly specialized. But then they do have mixed tactic sections at the end. I'm um, And of course, there's many other examples. Um, good to know. But let's hop into the first question, because we've got some good uh, brain science oriented questions. Um, and these, of course, are from supporters of the podcast who find out the guests in advance and are able to send in questions. And this one is from Matthew Hobbs, who says, hey, Chris, nerdy question here, which he, he came to the right place. So <laughs> good job. Good I, won't job take that. I won't take that as an insult. <laughs> I mean, I'm speaking about myself as well. Um, uh, he says, given the topic is chess improvement, I've recently been wondering about how I would conduct a study looking at the best methodology for chess improvement. I'm just an amateur, so you'd be in a better position to actually formulate the study. But can you make a, su a suggestion of how you would conduct a study to look at the most efficient method for improvement? Thanks in advance, Matt. That's a great question. And um, I have given that some thought even before I got Matt's question, because I'm also a mind reader. <laughs> uh, no, actually, it's, it is something I've thought about for a while because I've, I've, I've noticed what I, I think maybe Jan Gustafsson mentioned when he was on, which is that there really isn't scientific evidence directly on point for any of these claims that people make about what the best thing is to do because nobody is running studies testing methods of chess uh, learning. And I think it could be done. Um, I think uh, in the most basic form, the way you would gather some valuable evidence is you would get a bunch of volunteers who are willing to be part of a study. 
And you would then randomly assign them to do, let's say, to follow two different regimens. And you would measure their skill at the end of some period after which they had been following those regimens. It's kind of like any scientific study of any kind of intervention. So the, the general term in science would be an intervention or a treatment, even though these are not necessarily you know, medical or anything like that. <laughs> but it's, it's more analogous, I would say, to studies of like educational cur- curricula, which, which there are. You know, people will do an evaluation of one particular method of, of learning uh, geometry you know, versus another particular method, and they will actually literally randomly assign different classes or schools or students or something like that to these different methods. They're not easy experiments to do. People have done these experiments where they assign different classes, let's say, to have extra chess instruction or not, and then see whether the students get better at math and science and reading and and all that. And generally, the results are, are generally no, but there haven't really been too many experiments on that. But to see whether they get better at chess and by how much they get better at chess uh, you would follow the exact same methods. And, and I actually think it would be hard to get a school to do that, maybe in Armenia or something where it's mm-hmm. part of the national curriculum to, to, to do chess. Um, but uh, I think online platforms could do it. And some of the advantages they have is they have a continuous measure of how good people are at chess um, in the online ratings, right? And they have people who play quite a bit. So if they could somehow, you know, chess.com could somehow get volunteers for a study of chess training methods, and then randomly assign people to different methods, um, chess.com could even supply the methods, or Lee Chess could do it, or really anyone with this kind of platform, Chess24 and so on, could even supply the methods and pit them against each other and, and see which group winds up with higher ratings at the end, or which group winds up doing better on some later test of, of something. I, I think it, it could be done. What, one of the issues would be, would, how long would people stick with this study? Um, you know, uh, in principle, you can study any kind of diet, but a lot of people won't keep eating the food long enough to see how much it really makes you lose weight. Right. So right. here they keep on doing the woodpecker method, you know, for three months, if that's one of our treatment conditions or will they maybe get bored of it or, you know, or whatever, but in principle it could be done. And, and I, I you know, I personally would be interested in, in working on that kind of, uh, that kind of thing, although I don't have any plans to do it. Um, yeah. right? well, that would be awesome if you could make that happen sometime. You're obviously... Uh, the perfect person for it, but yeah, that I wouldn't be the right person to pick the training methods. Like, I think it should be like a collaboration between people who know how to run these studies and people who really have good ideas on what the training regimen should be, or maybe some evidence already that they, you know, they might be worthwhile, or just good ideas like what are the sort of competing schools of thought that we should test against each other to see whether they, you know, which one works better. Okay, yeah, and let's let's hop into another question because we have another um, very. Um, cognitive type question. And this one is from friend of the podcast, Vishnu Srikumar, um, uh, who works well. He's been bogged down with, uh, I believe he's, he's getting his PhD, but he's been bogged down with his his day job as a cognitive scientist lately. But I mean, very dedicated adult improver on chess Twitter. Um, and Vishnu asks, he says, uh, fellow cognitive scientist here, but I'm only starting out. So your perspective as a senior scientist on this would be quite helpful. I'd like to get your take on incorporating chess in one's research and how to go about doing that. I study human, use, excuse me, I, how do you, sorry. I study human memory using behavioral mathematical modeling and neuroscientific approaches. Chess as a stimulus set is extremely complex relative to the simple words that are typically used in memory experiments. Also because of the many covariates that are impossible to control for. Studying expertise in chess improvement is also hard. What tips would you have for a young academic 
looking to get into these topics at some point in their career. And there's currently a huge gap and need for scientific studies on the topic, given that people like Jan Gustafsson uh, find it apt to say that nothing matters, do whatever random things you like and hope they stick. However, the lack of scientific evidence for the efficacy of any particular given training method is not grounds for actively recommending randomness either. After all, we have collective wisdom from different successful coaches that point to some methods being potentially more useful than others, notwithstanding the lack of scientific evidence. So how can we as cognitive science offer something valuable to this domain? Finally, are you as irked as I am by all the neuropsychological babble and chess articles that are completely unfounded? And what is the most egregious case of this that comes to mind? So I don't know if you want to call anyone out. And obviously, there's a bit of overlap with stuff we've talked about already but nonetheless there's there's a lot i think for you to tackle from vishnu's question chris so well i'll go in reverse order because it took me like most of my life to realize that that pointing out and critiquing egregious cases of, of nonsense is sort of maybe my life's calling or something <laughs> like that. um and you can find examples in some of my writings um you know about other popular authors um, <laughs> your twitter beef with math malcolm gladwell yeah malcolm gladwell for example no, that's that's not a twitter beef that's yeah, no. <laughs> I, I reviewed his book in the wall street journal and slate and that's, that's the beef you know yeah um, uh but uh uh so um i really do appreciate the you know the i'm a believer in the fact that um you know incorrect information should be corrected um and um, I think it's true. I, I have seen a lot of examples of what I think Vishnu is is, is talking about. Um, and but it's hard to put my finger on any one in particular because they're so common. Um, nowadays, it's it's a very easy explanatory crutch to say you should do X because brain science says you should do X. And you can usually find some popular account of brain science that says the brain works this way, and it, it's because of the myelin sheath that wrap around the neurons, or it's because of this part of the brain does that, and that part of the brain does that, and, and so on. So there, there's so much of it that is sort of, um, it's hard to point to any one example, but I do think that when brain, brain science is, is remarkable, but it is still at the state where if someone says to you, you should do X because the brain works this particular way, that should make you slightly less likely to follow that advice, because it's probably the case that the person giving you the advice is overconfident in it, you know, and needs to reach for these explanatory crutches rather than coming up, you know, with some more simple form of evidence or logic, you know, that, that makes it seem worthwhile. All this science of learning stuff that I cited, all those experiments are what we would call just pure cognitive psychology experiments. They, they, just, they, they just measure behavior. Um, you know, they, they give people different methods of studying things and they measure how good they are at remembering them or using them or getting questions right later. They don't involve scanning the brain. They don't involve, you know, measuring your genes or making up stories about the hemispheres of the brain and, you know, male and female brains and all that stuff. They're, they're much, much simpler and, and, and in a way more reliable and, and trustworthy. Um, not that there's anything wrong with brain science. It's just that it's not far enough along to, to tell us what we need to do in education or in learning how to play chess or in, in those kinds of in those kinds of things. So that was the last thing he said, and I gave him a non-answer, but at least I explained why, you know, why it was a non-answer. Um, uh, I think his first question was really good, and this is not a science advice show, but but I would advise scientists to figure out ways to weave their other interests in life into their science as much as possible. Um, you know, so if, if, you know, if you're gonna be an anthropologist and explore other countries, it helps if you really like to travel, because if you hate to travel, you know, then you have, you have a clash between, you know, mm -hmm. your, 
your, your, what you need to do for work and, and, and what you like to do for, for real. If you're a chess player and you want to be a cognitive scientist, I think, it, or vice versa, I think it makes perfect sense to figure out how to integrate those things. And I think there are actually a lot of ways. And, and the, the evidence that that's possible is that if you look at like all the studies in cognitive science, cognitive psychology, behavioral science, and so on that refer to some kind of game as their test bed or their their example or something, chess is is, is dominating all the other ones put together probably. E- even, well, sports psychology is a whole separate field and there's a lot of research on sports, but if you stick to games, you know, like chess, it's chess is more than poker, backgammon, you know, everything else combined, even maybe video games. There are lots of studies on video games, but, but there's still more on chess and the, the chess study has been more influential. And um, so I would say like follow that instinct. Um, I'm not sure I can give you like any good specific project ideas or whatever, but I, I would say follow that instinct and and try to try to figure out ways to like break it down and make it simple. Like if you're if, if he's really interested in like fundamental processes of memory or something like that, maybe figure out like really simple things that people can, you know, can learn in chess or something like that, that you can quantify and get a hold on. Like, you know, how quickly can they mate with a king and queen versus a king? Like eventually you sort of learn to do that optimally, right? You learn the, the algorithm that does it in the shortest number of moves, but it maybe it takes a while even to learn something that simple. So if you wanted to study beginners, maybe, you know, maybe think about stuff like that. Um, Think about how you can use existing data. You know, there's so much existing data on chess, you know, that you can maybe use to test ideas. Um, and, you know, happy to talk to anybody who wants to, you know, who wants to work on that. I think it's a great, you know, a, a great instinct. Cool. And we do, need, we do need to come up with a good answer to Jan Gustafsson because unfortunately he's kind of right. <laughs> you know, I don't know the guy personally. I know you're friends with him, but, you know, I, and I love listening to him, but it kind of irks me when he's actually right. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel that. I mean, I don't feel that way about Jan as much as I do about my other friend, Greg Shahadi. But but yeah, I mean, it's it, it's a shame for him to be right because we spend so much time talking about it, you know. So for him for him to just kind of poo-poo it and, and be right. Yeah, it would be nice to come up with uh, some science to... Uh, but, uh, you know, Vishnu said something else good, which was like, it's true that like... We, we do have some ideas because there are people have been coaching and training chess for a long time. People have been studying chess for a long time. So I don't want to make it seem as though, you know, as scientists, we completely ignore human experience and, and we say that has no value or anything. I think what we generally tend to ignore are one-off anecdotes. So yeah. I think it's great that some guys became GM by doing the woodpecker method, but we don't know if they would become GMs if they hadn't done the woodpecker method or if they'd done something else. And we don't know about all the people who tried the woodpecker method and didn't become GMs. Like they're not writing books or coming on podcasts and so on, right? So the one-off anecdotes, you know, and the handful of anecdotes and so on are not very useful. But, you know, um, many coaches, um, you know, say that you need to study your own games, right? right? I think that's probably like a pretty good, you know, that's probably a pretty good piece of advice. And there are sound psychological reasons for that, right? Like you spent a lot of time thinking about that game while you were playing it, you know, so it's a richer, it's, it's a richer structure, you know, to investigate than, than some game you haven't seen before. Um, you actually calculated in those positions and you might have some memory of what you calculated and what you missed and be able to think about, why did I miss that? You know, is there something about my play that made me miss that? All these things that can come from your own games that can come from puzzles in a book, you know, and so on. So there, there's logic behind a lot of what coaches do, especially the good ones, obviously, and we, we shouldn't ignore that either. Okay. Yeah. Very, very good advice. And I just have a little bit more on brain science, Chris, and then, then we'll move on to, uh, to lots of other topics. Um, one, and, and again, for listeners, um, we talked about some of this stuff. Like we talked about, uh, what made, like what intrinsically makes a good chess player. And Chris got into his background a little bit more in, in this first interview. So if you're, if you 
are listening to this and you haven't caught up on the whole back catalog yet, definitely go back and listen to episode 95. Um, I re-listened and uh, made a few notes um, in, in preparation for this interview. And one topic that we didn't talk about, even though we did talk about what naturally leads to a better chess player is aging and chess, obviously another very frequent topic in, in, uh, on this podcast. But I just I thought it might be helpful if if you're able um, to just give sort of general overview about what is, what is known about like cognition and aging generally in, in amongst um, cognitive scientists. Yeah, I could say a couple of things, and I guess the first thing is I, I honestly never dreamed I would get to the point where that was a personal relevance, but I think it's here. Right. Uh, you know, and um, especially since I sort of came back to playing serious chess after a gap of about fifteen plus years. Um, I mean, a total gap of 15 years in playing tournament chess, but probably 15 plus in the sense of playing seriously. Like I, you know, probably about 18 years, 18 to 19 years that I didn't, you know, approach it too seriously. Um, but but zooming out a little bit, um, uh, you know, it, it's not all bad news for aging. So generally speaking, what happens with, we, we can think of cognition as sort of having like, there being sort of two types of cognition. So it comes from the literature on, on intelligence. So there's this idea of fluid intelligence, which basically means, your ability to um, uh, your ability to manipulate information um, in real time, um, manipulate, combine, use information to solve problems. Um, so um, you know, logical reasoning problems, you know, doing um, math problems and things like that, um, solving you know anagrams and things where you've got to do a lot of sort of like thinking and manipulating things in your head to generate an answer. Right, that. Fluid intelligence probably peaks around age 25 or so, and then it sort of slowly declines over the course of the lifespan, right? I don't know if there's an acceleration point or if it's just sort of like a, you know, a straight line, you know, decline. The other kind of intelligence is, is called crystallized intelligence. So crystallized intelligence means um, intelligence that, that's crystallized in the form of knowledge or skills or, or formulas or procedures that you can then apply to do more things. So a classic example of that outside of chess would be vocabulary, right? People generally don't forget words as they get older, right? They might learn new words, maybe learn them at a slower rate. Like I'm probably learning fewer new words every month than I learned when I was 20 or even especially when I was 10 or five, right? Back then I was learning lots of new words and so on. And you can use those new words then to do other things, right? And you don't sort of forget them. Maybe, maybe a, a, a sort of like, I'm leaving aside questions of like dementia and disease and so on, right, which, which may change things, but just sort of normal aging. So, you know, you, you may learn to solve more different kinds of endgames. And I, I solve, I don't mean solve endgame studies, but like, you know, maybe I could still learn like some new ways of, of, of winning or drawing certain rook endgames. Or maybe I could learn rook and bishop versus rook, you know, like perfectly and still remember that. But my calculation ability in general might go down because calculation is like the epitome of fluid intelligence. It's keeping straight a lot of information at once, you know, like what's the evaluation of this line? What's the evaluation of that line? Which is better? You know, what other things could I do? You know, and, and so on. So unfortunately, I think the fluid intelligence declining really hits us much more in calculation, you know, than it does in, let's say, pattern recognition or even opening knowledge or let's say concrete knowledge of specific end games. You know, all that concrete stuff, I think, our ability to learn it is still quite good as, as we get older and our ability to retain it is, and, and use it is still pretty good. But the fluid intelligence has, has trouble. And I mentioned this to, to Jakob um, Agard during the, the camp and, and, and he was like, yeah, you're, you're, you're hardly the only chess player who has, you know, who, who has, the, who has this problem in, in, in adulthood. And I, you know, I don't want to speak for him, but you know, 
he did mention that he blunders more often than he used to. So I think, right. <laughs> you know, I think it's, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a universal thing. Yeah. It's, it's a tough nut to crack. I should, I should, uh, I should say another thing. There's pr- probably also, as we get older though, we also get better at like, uh, you know, um, self-management, right. And self-control and so on. Right. So that tends to, you know, get better as we age as well. And we're better at planning and figuring out what's important and so on. So you can probably, make up for some of the loss of like concrete, you know, calculation, fluid intelligence ability with a little bit of wisdom or sort of meta knowledge, you know, about like how to allocate your time. And then maybe like, you know, learning your favorite opening to move 30 is not the best use of your time. Whereas when you were 15, that might've seemed more fun, you know, or 12 or something like that. You know, I don't, I don't know. I just made up that example, but um, there are probably various ways that the things that gain with age can be used to compensate for the things that don't, but over the board, you need the calculation, right? There's no, there's no substitute. Yeah, and that's that's a nice segue to you're doing this camp with Jakob Algard, and I'm guessing there was there was some calculation involved. So, Chris, I want to I want to segue into that in a second. But first, um, having talked about chess about spaced repetition, let's uh, take a break and hear from our friends at Chessable. So you, of course, hear Professor Shabri discuss space repetition in this interview. It is a key component of Chessable's Move Trainer technology. They help you make sure that you remember the things that you learn. You also heard him mention Chessable's short and sweet courses. Those are some of the many free courses from Chessable. They have over 100 free courses. So if you still haven't checked out their website just to see what it's like and see how it all works, you could just go to there, download one of the free courses on whatever opening piques your interest and take it from there. And beyond that, of course, they have a huge catalog of great courses and classic books that you can purchase if you like what you see. Courses from last week's guest, Erwin Lemie and U.S. champion Sam Shanklin, and so many great books, Gary Kasparov, and the list goes on. So go to chessable.com and have a look around if for some reason you have not already. Okay, so Chris, we know that you did um, you did a camp recently with uh, the aforementioned GM Jakob Agard of uh, Quality Chess and, of course, a uh, renowned author and instructor. So normally I would ask for a trip report, but, of course, this was a virtual camp because that's, that's how the world works these days. But what was that experience like? Yeah, it was a trip at my desk. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, it was really interesting. So I, I've studied with various coaches or te- we used to call them teachers um, over the years. Now it's now chess is more of a sport. So we have coaches and trainers and before mm-hmm. we call them teachers, um, including um, Shemkovich and Ryshevsky, um, believe it or not. And I had one lesson with Bruce Pandolfini, but, but then, you know, for years and years, I was sort of like self-trained. And then when I came back to chess, I was self-trained again. But curiously, like after our podcast, after our last, our first podcast, like a year and a half ago or two years ago, I said, boy, I better really get serious about this thing now that I'm going on podcasts. <laughs> right. and so, on. so I started, um, uh, you know, working with Eric Kislik, as I mentioned before, but I'd never done like one of these camp experiences or these intensive training things. You know, we would do like 90 minutes. We do 90 minutes a week or something like that. And um, I saw suddenly that, that like, you know, they're they're doing camps and the camps are online. So you don't have to like feel like you're the only grown up, you know, at some kid's summer camp or something like that. Right. You know? yeah. And um that said, I thought there would be more quote grownups than there were. It was basically like me and 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 me and one college student and and ten kids or something like that. You know, it was was kind of what it amounted to, and um, and it was really interesting. I thought I got a lot out of it, although, and I think what I got out of it was sort of what I expected to get. Um, and um, so I'll just sort of tell you how it went. It was uh, this this um, 
Um, U.S. Chess Hub, Pacific Northwest Chess Center, I think, are, are doing like eight camps um, with him and a lot of camps with other people over the summer. And they have different themes. So there's um, positional play, um, calculation, winning one positions, and I think attack, attacking play. Um, I signed up for the positional play one mainly because it was the one when I thought I would be free and mm-hmm. I could spend the time because I basically had to tell my work colleagues, you know, I'm going to be on vacation every afternoon this week. I know that sounds weird to go on vacation for the afternoons, but um, maybe that's a coronavirus thing, like where we take a vacation in the afternoon instead of for a whole week. Um, And, um, you know, I turned off Slack and I turned off my email and and so on. And um, uh, the way it worked was um, first you sent in two annotated games of your own to directly to Jakob, like the week before the camp. And he specifically wanted one game where we played well positionally and one game where we played poorly positionally. And unfortunately, it was much harder for me to find the first kind <laughs> game than, than, than the second kind. Um, maybe I took the assignment a little bit too much to heart and like focused too much on positional excellence, you know, so it was kind of hard to, you know, to find that. But I did find an example. In fact, it was the game where I was inspired by the Spassky Fisher World Championship game. Um, and um, so I annotated those. And sent them in. And then, um, you know, everybody shows up on Zoom for the first session. And it's entirely on Zoom. There's no, like, no use of chess.com or Lee Chess or whatever. He puts everything on the screen on Zoom. And um, I had no idea how it would work. But but the way he did it was he, most of the camp would consist of him asking a question about the position on the screen. And you can set up Zoom so that you can private chat to people. So he wanted us to private chat him our solutions. And the solution could be a move or a variation or an idea, or sometimes it was multiple moves. Like he would say, give me three candidate moves for this position. And the whole point was to actually generate multiple ideas there instead of like, think of what's the right move, you know, and so on. Cause not every, not every real world position in a game that's interesting to study has one, you know, white to play and win solution or one clearly best move. And I thought he did a pretty good job in the whole camp of posing like a great diversity of problems, even though the theme was supposed to be positional play he would basically find anything that was interesting in the games that people had sent in and that he had looked over um, and put it on the screen and rap, rapid fire problem after problem after problem. And you had to, you know, you could do nothing if you wanted and just watch, you know, but he really would encourage people. And I think the subtle presence of sort of the expert coach that, you know, if you're an adult, at least you've paid for yourself, um, you know, is a really is a good commitment device to get you to actually try. So I, I felt on ninety nine percent of the problems, I was actually trying, and I felt bad when I couldn't come up with a solution as quickly as as some of the other you know camp members. And I felt good when you know he, he would call me out and say, "Chris has got the right answer." Nobody else can see my answer, of course, because I private chatted it to him. Um, I would feel bad when he started listing other people's names and I didn't hear my name. And mm-hmm. and it, he would also like text back to people and say, that doesn't work because of X, you know? So he's kind of got one of those Dvoretsky style databases of examples where he's got, he's worked out the analysis so much that he sort of like knows what the refutation is for all the tries you might make. And so he can, you know, and, and it was kind of impressive that some of that was from games that he had just got the week before, you know, it had analyzed for this camp. So another strong impression was that he worked hard on this, like analyzed our own games. He sent us back a file of our own games at the end to see what comments he had made. He put up problems from our own games. He gave us homework. So this was one thing I was hoping for also was each day we had six positions that we were supposed to work on for like an hour. I found myself working on them for like two or three hours because they were hard. And we we photograph and send back our our, um, solutions and handwriting. And then he annotates them. 
and you know gives you a check mark if you got it right or you know tells you what's wrong with one of your lines you know and I like I never got as low as two out of six on a homework you know in my in my memory except ones I didn't turn in I guess you know so turning in a homework and getting two out of six was you know was was humbling but on the other hand the whole point was and I think he explained this right is is not to give people things they can do but to give people things that are really hard you know where the process of trying to do them is 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 part of the learning um you know and so then we'd, we'd begin the next day's session by going over all the homework and um, you know, he would ask someone who got it wrong to basically like be his sort of guinea pig for that and say like, okay, what, you know, what, what did you think here? And I guess the other thing I would add is that, um, you know, the calculation came in because that's inevitably part of chess solving, right? Like you can't do positional play all by itself because you need to do some calculation to figure out why some positional ideas work and don't work or why, you know, um, why something is a weakness, let's say. And, and, um, his his famous three questions were a big part of of the camp as well, right? So often he would say, "Well, let's go back to the three questions and see if we can use those to understand what's going on in this position." And the three questions, as I'm sure everyone knows by now, are: "What's the worst place piece? What are the weaknesses? And what's the opponent's idea or intention or plan? Um, or what even what move is the opponent going to play next? You know, some 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 element of that, and that leads to prophylactic thinking, right? Like preparing for what your opponent is going to do and preventing it. Um, and um, you know, in, in one sense, it was kind of a very unstructured experience. It was all based on material we had sent in and maybe a few examples he had picked out from here and there. Um, but on the other hand, it was structured in that we sort of repeatedly did the same kind of exercises over and over again. And they really made me think about chess for like six plus hours a day, you know, and try to solve chess problems for six plus hours a day, which I never would have made myself do in a million years, you know. So this is a good excuse for spending the time and it's a good motivating device and having paid money for it, you have a sunk costs effect, right? You know, right. I just, these guys, hundreds of dollars, I better, you know, I better not just waste my money. Um, so it was a great experience. It was a great experience, um, you know, uh, all around, I would say. Yeah, it sounds, sounds good. And not, not surprising to hear that GM Agard is conscientious. I certainly, I, I often think about him mentioning that he checks all the homework in the 365 chess Academy. Um, and yeah, of course, I've I've mentioned before. I I had a little free preview in in um, building up to interviewing GM Ramesh and GM Agard, and I I've been working on my chess and thinking about joining, but because of the reasons you say, because I just can't I I can't pull the trigger on the amount of commitment I would feel like I need to do, like the amount of rigor I would want myself to exhibit. I, I haven't done it yet, but certainly it's um I'm hoping I'm hoping to find the motivation soon to I do it. I was thinking of doing 365 after doing this because this I sort of viewed as a little bit of a preview of, of that. Right. Um, but as far as I understand it, the 365 thing, the homework club is once a week. So you yeah. get a set of puzzles a week. I think it's more puzzles like 12 or 16 instead of instead of just six. But you only have to spend like an hour like going over them with them. So the main point I would use it for is to get someone to grade my homework. Yeah. And then sort of like see what the solutions are. Like I, I've always wanted to do, do the calculation training that you're really supposed to do like go through Vola Keaton's book, Perfect Your Chess, go through GM prep books, you know, and so on. But it's hard, you know, as as an adult and as someone who's not the best at self-control and, you know, and commitment and so on to make myself do that. So I would view these other things as like commitment devices or sort yeah. of forcing devices to make yourself do it. And I always, I think maybe I could do the once a week calculation thing and I wouldn't feel bad about throwing away too much of my money. Yeah, although of course, both you and GM Magard would say, even if it's a once a week thing, do do two problems a night. Don't don't do all the homework the night before if, if that's all the chess <laughs> oh, you're doing. Yeah, that would probably be pretty good. Also, yeah, and I, I, it's already hard enough to like retreat into your cave and and do 
you know, and do chess, you know, in an isolated place, you know, for a long period of time. And generally when I, when I do that during the week, I would sort of like to play a tournament game maybe or something like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Instead of sit by myself with a, you know, with a book and a board. Yeah. And, and we'll get to tournament games because I do want to talk about your online training, but first, um, related question from Han Shu, who, uh, uh, asked, ask for an assessment of the Agard camp, but then he also asks, uh, did your recent chess study and development provide you with any in new insights about chess improvement? And what was your biggest surprise in your personal and your son's? Because I mentioned your son in the, the little write-up I did for supporters of the podcast. I mentioned that he's a um, improving young chess player as well. So have there been any surprises in your chess, your son's chess, and did you have any particular insights from uh, the recent GM Agard camp. Well, I'll go and uh, kind of go in reverse order. Like one one of the insights about my son's improvement is he likes to lord it over me. <laughs> uh, we we were at a soccer tournament a few months ago, like the last event we really went to outside our house, you know, before all the uh, COVID you know lockdown started. And um, like I, I you know I, I I confess I'd had a drink or two like that evening, you know, and then he wanted to play me. No odds. <laughs> Uh -oh. you know, no clock, but no odds. And he actually won the game, you know, and that was the first time he beat me at even odds. He's about 1650 USCF. So, um, and, and, and getting, and getting stronger. And he, he recently beat a guy on, he beat a guy on Lee chess in classical chess who had beaten me like a couple months earlier. So he's like, I beat a guy who beat you. So I'm better than you, you know, so <laughs> uh -oh. really, like his chess improvement, like one of the strongest features of it is that he likes to tell me about it, you know, and, and, uh, and, and so on. I don't know how many new insights I have, except that I've definitely seen that, you know, the, the universe of things you can use today and that makes sense to use is so much greater than it was. Like sometimes I think back to when I was, was learning and going up to 2200 and so on. And I never did a single puzzle book. Like I didn't even do the Fred Reinfeld, you know, win at chess or anything like that. You know, I would look at some combinations and books, you know, but I didn't even do encyclopedia of chess combinations and so on. I never did any of that stuff. And it seems so useful now, um, and it's 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 easy to do in some ways with all the online tools and the apps and and so on. Um, I, I guess I guess one insight I would have, and it might be sort of age related, and I think Han Shute is one of the older. You yeah, know, he's in his fifties. Yeah. I think I played him on Chess.com a couple of times too. Um, he, he, I think he crushed me um, in a Scotch Gambit or something like that. Um, and uh, uh, I think that the training of the calculation and visualization is, is much more important than I ever realized it would be because I never really realized, I probably had a problem with it all along, but I was just sort of like good enough in other ways to mask it. Um, you know, I'd really love to look back at all my games and see like whether my blunder rate now is higher than it was when I had the same rating, but I was 20 years old. You know, yeah. like, for me would be an interesting question, right? When I was 22, 26 at age 20, what was my play like compared to my 22, 26 right now? you know, um, at age 50 plus. Um, so yeah, I'm in a similar boat. Um, <laughs> yeah, and um, I mean, I, I did, I, I was recently heartened to find out that actually my peak FIDE rating in the past was higher than I even remembered. I went back and looked at the records. I reached 2270 FIDE, which is, you know, to me seems like a really great rating now that I'm down to 2125. So it gives me, <laughs> hurt, you know, it gives me hope that I can get back to that level if I was there and, and maybe beyond, you know, if I was there once before, but I think calculation and visualization is, is still my weak, you know, it's still my weak point. Yeah. Uh, and for me, it's the same. And for me, I, I think from gathering from what you say, you're in a similar boat in that it's the hardest thing to motivate to do. Like, yeah. And, and it's, it's specifically visualization where there are similar lines you have to compare, right? If it's like, 
if it's doing the combination, but in a different order, right? There are some combinations where like you can trade the pieces in like four different orders, right? And one of them works and the other ones don't, or they even lose, you know, keeping those straight in your head, you know, and comparing them properly. And so on, that's the hardest thing because um, that's fluid intelligence right there, Ah. you know, keeping different, but similar things straight and noticing the differences, right? Like really hard puzzles, like are kind of like that, you know, really hard, um, like non chess puzzles are kind of like that, right? And really hard chess puzzles are like that too, where there's like three ways to do the combination, only one of them works. And it's very subtle as to why you have to do it in that order. You know, that's, that's tough. That's interesting, because I had, I had noticed that I'm, I, I struggle more with complex positions, like it's, I don't necessarily, if you give me a relatively linear line, I can calculate, you know, a decent number of moves, and it's not that challenging. But but like you say, in these these positions where there's either a number of moves that you have to calculate or just pieces flying all over the place, um, even if it, even if the solution is a smaller number of moves, even if it's only a three move solution, I tend to get lost in the weeds. I've noticed. Yeah, I've, I've found that myself in, in studying with, with Eric and just like doing some of those pos- some of those positions that Jakob gave us and and so on. One time ages ago, I was at, I went to a talk that Jim Rosatano gave, who was an inter- international master, pretty famous IM in the New England and Boston area. And he said, whenever, whenever non-chess players ask him how many moves ahead he can think, he says 30. And then <laughs> there was this end game where he actually thought 30 moves ahead because it was all like walking the king around the board, like while nothing else was happening, right? And you really could think 30 moves ahead because there was one line, you know? Right. So that's the, that's the easy part, right? It's like 30 moves with one line is much harder than, you know, um, uh, five, you know, five moves with six lines, right? That's impossible. Yeah, yeah, well said. So, Chris, I know that earlier you said that that no one person's anecdote, you know, necessarily should be taken as gospel. But I still have to ask you how you're spending your study time. Um. <laughs> well, I don't, I, I, I don't have percentages, but I, I, I have at least been trying to keep records of it so that I could one day, like retrospectively, look at it and see what I've been doing. So, um, I've been trying to do. I try to do tactics every day, like minimum 15 minutes, but usually it winds up being longer than that on the days that I do it. Um, and I set up a schedule for myself where I alternate between chess.com, which is interleaved, like the position could be anything, like even some endgame studies get thrown in there or occasional rook endgame or something like that. Um, and um, the Chess King app, which has all these um, these apps, like they have CT Art which has been mentioned before. They also have like the Encyclopedia of Chess Middle Games on there in like three volumes. And those are all grouped. So there'll be like a hundred, you know, interference examples mm-hmm. that it'll take me like a month to get through them all, you know, and so on. So I try to alternate that, but sometimes I, I kind of give up on that for no really good reason and focus more on openings. So I've actually been trying to like learn different openings. And, um, you know, I love your sponsor Chessable, but often I will just get the free, you know, short and sweet version and go through that to get a flavor of things or even learn those lines first and then see, you know, so I've been trying to broaden my opening repertoire, add some new openings and and um, finally had the bravery to trot a couple of them out in sort of more serious games um, lately with fairly good results. Um, and of course, I take the lessons. Um, so that's like 90 minutes every week. I have a lesson. That's a lot. That's good. That's great. Yeah, sometimes it's a little shorter, sometimes a little, a little longer. I mean, you know, Eric basically goes on until we're done, you know, pretty much, you know. Um, and in, in contrast to one of my previous teachers, I, I have to say, um, Sammy Ryshevsky, I took like four lessons with him when I was a kid. And like, he would end on the hour, like no matter what you were doing, like you could be in the middle of the sentences, in my memory, at least, like you could be in the middle of the sentence. And like, if the hour was up, you know, then, then you know, then so long. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, I, I think it's much more flexible with, with um 
much more flexible with with, with Eric, and he, um, um, he he brings a lot of material that I wouldn't have looked at before too. So like um, I find myself thinking more about engine games, you know, and 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 so on, which is really interesting because uh, there's there's a lot we can learn from engines. I don't think we've even learned exactly like how best to use engines and how much we can learn from them. Um, and then there's playing. So I was on a pretty good schedule of playing like one real tournament a month with my son. We would go to like a weekend tournament, you know, like five rounds or something like that, but that got shut down by COVID. Um, so I've been trying to do more of that, um, classical games online. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, that, that, that's most of it. Oh, also reading. Yeah. I'm sorry. Reading chess books. What, how could I, yeah, of course. Yeah. So I, um, I, I was really a purist for books. Like I really liked the paper you know, and the, the covers and, you know, like, as you can see behind me, since we're on video right now, like I have a lot of books. Um, and I think we talked about that last time. I have even more chess books now, which is, which is kind of embarrassing considering how many I had then, but I've discovered that, you know, like the stereotypical old person, I like to read stuff on the iPad, yeah. um, not because I love the iPad, but because forward chess and, and Gambit, Gambit has a really good chess reader too. Like you can, you can read the chess books the way you never could before. And so I'm, I'm playing through like every variation now and like thinking about the positions and so on, cause I can see them in front of me. And, um, so I've been, I've been doing more of that, um, uh, as, as well, um, picking certain books, not necessarily recent ones even, but ones that, that I think I really should read, um, because there's something I could learn from them, like Watson's, um, secrets of modern chess strategy and chess strategy in action are the most recent ones that I've been going back to. And there, are they on e-readers? Yes, they're both on Gambit. Okay, so, interesting. <laughs> I got to get the Gambit app and see what's yeah, there. Because I'm with. Yeah, they don't contribute to Forward Chess. I think they're kind of keeping their own little universe. But like most of their, I probably half their books at least are on there, and they, they keep on adding new older books, you know, on onto that. Um, even like some of their older opening books, you know, oddly enough, they they're adding on, and they've got this cool series they just started where like super GMs pick a hundred puzzles and annotate them. So the first one was by Wesley So, and it's only four bucks. It's like the steal of the century. Hmm. Uh, Second one is Michael Adams. So I started the Wesley So one, and um, and I, I already bought the Michael Adams one. I'm going to work on that one next because he's awesome. a player. Really, probably study more. Like he, he manages to win games without like having to out calculate everyone all the time, you know. And he's still twenty seven hundred. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and he's um, you know, not not the youngest guy on the circuit, but I mean, his ratings fallen a little bit recently. But I mean, he was just, you know, just rock solid for so many years yeah and he has a lot of like model games and the kind of openings i like like the royal lopez for white you know and, and, and yeah anti-sicilians and stuff like that yeah um so what other what other books have have impressed you since we last chatted um well let's see it just so happens i made a list um well so i, I did love the anon files like everybody else um I, I i really unique like insights into what goes on in a world championship match um and uh, I, I reread Road to Chess Improvement that you talked about recently. Um, like Yermo's personality is, you know, is, is, is awesome. But you can learn a lot of chess from there, too. Like he really explains like certain things so well. He goes into depth in some concepts like the exchange variation of the Queen's Gambit or like yeah. the main line that like he really explains stuff that you don't find like any, anywhere else. But just his whole attitude is, is interesting. Um, uh, let's see. I, I read... Um, well, of course, I read Game Changer. That came out since the last time. I, I reread two books I had read before, which I really think everyone should read. One of them is um, Improve Your Chess Now by John yeah. Um, one of my favorite books of all time by an author who, like, I hate to say one hit wonder. I'm hoping he'll come out with a couple more hits someday. But that book came out in like 1999, you know, and I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure he's done another one since then. He's uh, working on a book. 
I yeah, don't know. I follow him on Twitter. He talks about it. I think yeah. I think it'll be out within a year. But yeah, I'm a big fan of that book too. He told me that you should have him on when that when that comes out. But but spend half the time talking about his first book. You know. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then Secrets of Practical Chess by by John Nunn, which I think Kevin Go or someone mentioned recently. Like that. That's a uh, yeah. Stuart Rachel said it's like the best book ever. Yeah, Stuart Rachel's great, great guy who I who I knew back in the day. Um, um, with the Collins kids and everything. So I went back to that. I read um, John Rousen's books, which are which are awesome. I had sort of skimmed them when they came out. But a lot of these books came out during the time when I wasn't playing. Right. Chess. Yeah. Sort of like being a chess person, you know, so yeah. the coolest new books and like skim them. But, you know, I never really like played through anything or tried really hard. Um, so, yeah, those are some of the ones I've, I've sort of finished recently. I'm working on some I'm working on some others um, um, right now, too. And I have like a list of like to get twos, you know, so. Good stuff. Yeah, there's there's just so many. It's so hard. I, I have to fight the impulse to order more books basically every day. Yeah, um, I, I see people are like people are kind of focusing a little bit more though on the like learn from the engines aspect of things. Like there are some books coming out that I really want to read on that theme. Like um, like Quality Chess just has a book right out. Like Think Like a Machine or something like yeah. that. Yeah, sure. How good an example of this it's going to be? I think there's really a lot of depth to be reached in this whole discussion of like how to use engines to to get better and to learn more about chess, but. I'm glad people are starting to focus on it finally in a more serious, you know, in a more serious way. Yeah, I think I, I saw that quality chess book and I think Turkmakov might have a new one um, out with Thinkers Publishing. Uh, let me I'm just going to fact check that. But while I do that, let me ask you also, Chris. So you did mention league games and and we have um, shout out to the Twitter chess league, um, which I think I know you're still in and uh, uh supporter of the podcast for us, Sawaf um, of the Apprentice Twitch channel also wrote in, he's in the same Lee Chess League as you. He says um, he's in he's in the same Lee Chess 45-45 League and his team is playing yours this week, although he pointed out you're on first board and he, he is not, so he won't be playing you. But he said, can you recommend any other resources for online training games and tips for how to prepare for opponents? Well, fortunately, I think this is coming out after this round ends, so I don't mind recommending things to the people that our team played right before um well be, be, before i answer that i mean i really would like to give a recommendation and a, a, a kudos to the lead chess 45 45 team it's like a totally volunteer organization that runs this league um that anyone can join and they randomly assign teams to, but but to balance the rating so like every team has an equal chance and no team has like a strong identity because they're more, more or less randomly composed although they will let friends you know like request each other um it's really incredibly well run and then they run side tournaments like a 30 plus 30 tournament and a 90 plus 30 tournament and 960 and you know all, all kinds of stuff so anybody should go to leechess4545.com i think it is and, and check it out um so how to prepare well one nice thing that leechess4545 does is when they put out the pairings their software automatically puts a link where you can download a pgn file of all of your opponent's classical games on Lee Chess for that week. Um, so um, I have done that and had some success at predicting what openings my opponents will play. Um, somewhat to my surprise, people who play a lot of their chess on Lee Chess or online seem to have more diverse opening repertoires than people who focus on over the board. Like hmm. back when I played like a lot of over the board chess, like everybody had one repertoire, unless you were really good. You know, like if you were like an IM or better, like then you could play multiple, you know, white openings and multiple defenses and so on. But like even some of my IM friends, they would always play the King's Indian, you know, or they would always play whatever as black, even if, you know, no matter what. So it's a little harder to predict what your opponent's going to play, but I've had some preparation successes. And I think one thing I, I like quite a bit about it is 
the ability to prepare. Um, and uh, that helps you learn your openings, right? Because like, if I think my next opponent is gonna play the Jobava attack as white, and I really have never played much against that as black, that's my excuse to learn it, you know? And I have a motivation, right? Motivation is one of the most key things that will make you spend your time on something, right? The motivation is my next opponent will play this opening and then I will learn it so that future opponents, you know, I'll be better, you know, better equipped against them. So tips for preparing, download your opponent's games, try to predict what openings they're gonna play. Um, I am not very good at, nor have I ever really tried hard at like analyzing someone's style or their tendencies or whatever from games. It feels like too much work to like review enough right. to try to figure out like this guy hates rook end games. So try to get him into a rook end game or something like that. Like, I just don't think I could even draw like that conclusion strongly from the sample I'd have available, you know, seems much better to try to predict the opening and then learn that really well. And, and, you know, don't just memorize lines, right? Like look at some model games or like figure out what the plans are, you know, and, and, and all that kind of stuff. Okay. Excellent. Excellent advice. But they sort of make it easy, you know, like this, this, this league makes it easy to, to do that. Okay. Yeah. Then it's funny. It's, I'm just reading it. I was surprised about the idea of a team league. I mean, again, like if it, if it were with people, you knew team team events are quite fun, but it, it it's kind of counterintuitive to me that it would be fun even with sort of a random assortment of people. But Lee Chess does do an awesome job overall. So Yeah, so these, these guys are like a separate organization, although there's overlap, like some of the moderators of the, the 4545 League are also Lee Chess mods, you know, so they sort of have an in and their, their system is interfaced very well with Lee Chess itself. Um, but you can request like friends to be on your team. They just, they just can't do it to the extent that it unbalances the team. Like you couldn't have a team of like a bunch of 2100s because right. has like a 2100 plus a 2000 plus a 1900 like it sort of spreads out you know on on, on the on, on the boards and do you deal do you have like no shows for when you're supposed to play because that i mean uh the, the it's the twitter chess league is great the, the guys running it are putting a ton of time in but some obviously sometimes you just can't get the person to play you that's that's a problem so they have somehow over the years i wasn't part of this league chess league from the beginning i only heard about it like a year or two ago but somehow they have sort of developed a culture and an organizational system and, and literally a software system that, you know, sends, yeah, everybody has to, I'll, I'll go into the guts of it a tiny bit, but everybody, it's, 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 there's much more infrastructure than the Twitter chess league or some of these other things. So everybody's got to be on a, on a Slack group. Slack is, you know, like an I, it's instant message yeah. system with channels and so on. It's kind of like discord. It's like, just like discord basically, except it's more business oriented. Um, everybody's got to be on various Slack groups. The pairings get, message to you on Slack. You've got to contact your opponents within 24 hours. If you don't, you've got like a yellow card or you've got a warning and then a yellow card and then a red card, and then they can basically kick you out of the league or not let you sign up the next season. And, you know, they've made it a good enough experience that people generally don't want to have these sanctions, you know? So, um, and, and also they have like alternate lists, right? So if like, if, if this week, one of our players like was camping and like lost all of his like, you know, internet access. So he couldn't like set up his pairing. So the league just finds you an alternate for that week because there's a whole, oh, wow. alternates, you know, who are sort of in reserve. It's, it's really incredibly well done. So I've almost never had a person not show up to a game, you know, and not have a good reason for it. And I always say I'm happy to reschedule, but some people want to take the point instead. The funniest thing that happened though, was I, someone, someone showed up like 15 minutes late. I said, okay, no problem. We started. And then like after nine moves, he just stopped moving. And so huh. I went 40 minutes and his flag falls. You know, and then he's like, oh, I fell back asleep. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> he fell asleep. That doesn't happen in over the board. Very much. Yeah, that's, that's really funny. <laughs> um, um, 
Okay, yeah, and I fact-checked, and there is a new book called Modern Chess Formula, The Powerful Impact of Engines by Tukmakov. So it's, I feel like it's rare that I fact-check something and I actually had it right, but it was the first, first time for everything. Um, <laughs> yeah, you were, correct, you were correct about that one. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously we've been interrupted by the, the coronavirus, so, I mean, are you, are you even thinking about OTB chess or just, I mean, it seems impossible right now, at least in the United States. I think about it a lot because I was kind of on a roll and I, I have the feeling that it, one thing that surprises me about playing more online is the discrepancy between people's over the board ratings and their online ratings. And I'm not trying to insinuate cheating or anything like that because I think the sites do a pretty good job of catching, you know, cheaters and so on. But I didn't realize before the extent to which like someone could maybe legitimately be like an 1800 FIDE over the board, but like a 2150 you know, or 2200 strength, like, you know, Lee Chess classical player or something like that. My ratings are all very tight. Like my FIDE rating is 2125. My highest, like online ratings, like 2300 or something like that, you know, and then that's blitz, you know, so which is much different from like FIDE, you know, from, from slow chess and, and FIDE rated tournaments. Um, but I would like to get back to playing because I think I'm one of those people maybe who functions relatively, I might have a comparative advantage in economic terms at OTB chess. Because I think maybe like I've been doing it for so long that it's easy for me to concentrate for five hours. Whereas maybe like younger players or players who are used to playing online more, maybe actually have trouble like sitting and concentrating on a game for five hours without having other windows open and without, you know, without being able to do all the things you can do when you're just at home playing, you know, or something like that. So I kind of feel like I might prosper more and over the board, you know, than, than in, than in online. So I'm, I'm hoping to get back to it if only for that reason. And, and also I, I just feel like it's, it's not uncheatable of course, but I just have like more faith, in over-the-board chess as providing like the best possible estimate of your strength. And one of my goals is to actually get better, to become a better player and to have that measurable outcome. You know, and I think over the board would give yeah. me confidence in the best measurable outcome. Yeah, I was finally getting motivated when coronavirus hit. And now I have been working on my chess, but I decided to only work on my blitz, which which is interesting in itself, but uh, we'll find out how much overlap there is when, like, whenever we're allowed to, to go to tournaments again, which who knows when that will be. By the way, in the Lee Chess League, a lot of teams have not surprisingly adopted team names. It's kind of like the U.S. amateur team where like, you try to come up with the funniest name. Right. Many COVID themes, you know, and um, th this season our team is called Our Position is So Bad Only a Vaccine Can Save It. <laughs> nice. I like it. It very much reflects current events. Uh -huh. and, and At least in some parts of the world where you and I live. Yeah. And and as someone who does some teaching, I've seen that the chess students and of course adult chess students as well, but people I feel like uh people have varying degrees of motivation and I've noticed some of my students really are struggling to um maintain their their hunger when there's no OTB chess which feels so much more real than any online tournament they're going to play. Um and so I was just curious if your son is is he is he maintaining his interest while he's stuck at home? Because chess is such a great activity for quarantine. I've been kind of hoping my son would get into it, but even even quarantine is not doing the trick. Well, uh, you know, it's hard to compete with Fortnite and YouTube, yeah. Netflix and so on. You know, there's in Minecraft, there's a lot of stuff that people can do, you know. So um, what, what we've done is I basically have a schedule. Like I designed a training regimen for him. Like you've got to do... You know, you've got to work on mastering chess strategy for 30 minutes a day on forward chess, you know, and you've got to do 15 minutes of tactics and, you know, and, and blah, blah, blah. And, um, you know, I try to hold him to it, you know, and, and so on. And he's in a, a couple of online, 
you know, slow, uh, you know, format events. And I think maybe people who are having trouble finding motivation, maybe they might like to try something more structured, like a classical tournament, or one of the increasing numbers of like weekend tournaments that are now online. Um, and um, I, I played in one of those uh, over July 4th um, that these Pacific Northwest Chess Center guys organized. And considering the constraints of running a serious tournament when everybody's just, you know, at home and everybody's worried about cheating and so on, they did an amazing job of it. They, they had like 40 GMs in this thing, you know, so I got to play two 2600 FIDE players um, as well as a lot of kids, uh, you know, <laughs> um, not, not surprisingly, but, um, you know, 60 plus five, 60 plus 10, you know, 45 plus 45, like those are reasonable time controls to think you're playing serious chess and, and to be, you know, to think that they're a serious test of you. The only thing that doesn't happen is it doesn't affect your over the board rating, which is the thing that I, and probably most anyone of any generation really cares most about these days. Anyhow, that's, that's the drawback, but, um, it's it's not as bad as it could have been. I think you know it's there, people are really trying. Like you know, Bill Goichberg is trying to run his tournaments online. You know, everybody's gradually learning how to do that better. You know, it's not perfect, but um, I I I think there's you know I, I think there are ways to to get to get motivated to do it. And and I I really find the learning to be motivating for me too. Maybe it's one of those things that increases with age. Like kid, kids don't respect losing because of what they learn, right? You know, but yeah, I'll arouse and I like to say, well, I, I lost the game, but I learned something and. I can even sense the moment during the game when I feel like my position is so bad, like I switch into learning mode almost. It's not that I give up trying to find the best moves, but I, I sort of like reframe the experience emotionally as, okay, this is going to be a good game to study later on, or at least I'm going to learn how to play this this damn variation after this debacle, you know, or something like that. <laughs> right. And so I always try to take something positive from it, you know, so that that's a little bit easier to do online when it's a little lower stakes, right? Whereas if yeah. I go over the board game and and, and lose it's a little harder to reframe it that way for some reason. I don't really quite know why. Maybe because I'm yeah. real rating points, you know, maybe that's the, the problem. Yeah. I mean, with the, uh, us as adults, like we're ultimately responsible. Like, you know, I might talk about some motivation problems, but I I'm, you know, I'm a grown up. I know that's on me, but I, I was curious with, with your son. So are there days where he says he doesn't want to do it or is, is he just, you, you know, he just needs a little prodding sort of thing. Um, He needs some prodding. Um, uh -huh. like he, he usually, he wants to have a break on the days when he plays like a slow game online. So if he's got like, you know, he plays a game online that took an hour, like, you know, he wants that to be a day when he doesn't have to do any other chess stuff. Um, and so on, which is, you know, not unreasonable, but the problem is like, okay, but then do you really need to be doing Fortnite for six hours? Like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, and are you like a rewards guy? Would you, would you like straight up bribe your kids? Like, do you? If you say if you do this for 30 days, you'll get them that, um, you know, obviously the the parenting literature is all over the map with stuff like that. Yeah, I don't really feel like I'm much of an expert on that, nor do I know much of the science of it. But um, I feel like we've had pretty good success with kind of setting rules. Um, and then outside the rules, we've been kind of letting him do whatever he wants. And um, sadly, there's like no school going on. <laughs> right. Know? early school going on in spring, you know, and so on. So, so, so to let you do what you want, like outside of the rules encompasses a lot of stuff, you know, and it's, it's kind of hard for a, even a, you know, a, a rational kid even to complain and say, well, you made me do 90 minutes of chess today, you know, and only six hours of Fortnite. like that argument is not going to go anywhere, you know? So, yeah. So, but the chess is within the rules. It's like something you're going to do. You're going to do this. Yeah. When there's okay. No involved or anything like that but but actually like I, I found that the more he does it the more he enjoys it in some ways right so it's 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 kind of interesting i think part of that is like 
when you're improving at something. Yeah. Or motivating, right? And and we were really on a good run, like both of us with the over the board stuff, because although my rating wasn't shooting up, like he was having some good results. And mm-hmm. he, I think genu- genuinely excited to go to the next over the board tournament the next month or something like that, you know, and see if he could win some money, you know, in the under 1800 section or get his rating over 1700 this time or, or whatever, you know, you don't want to be tied too much to rating points. But at the same time, like, it's good to have, you know, some motivations for improvement. Cool. Um, great stuff. Yeah. I mean, I, right now my, I, I hold my son's feet to the fire for piano, but I'm not doing it with it with much else. So, although he's not at the six hours of video games age yet, but We're the we, let him, we let him quit the piano a few years ago, but one of the conditions was we weren't going to let him quit chess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So, I like it. You know. Um, so last time I had you on, Chris, you told a story of helping organize a simul for, uh, Kasparov, uh, back when you were at Harvard. And I know that subsequently you mentioned that you had a couple stories that you forgot to mention. So last thing, if you have the time, do you have, um, do you have any more stories you'd like to share with our audience? Well, you used to ask about like, you know, have you had any brushes with famous chess players or whatever, you know, so I had sort of mentally prepared a list of all my brushes with the famous chess players. And Kasparov was the first one. Right. Uh, you know, I never, you know, I, I never, I never met Fisher or anything like that. But um, it was really international master Dan Edelman, um, who drove this, this thing where Kasparov came to visit Harvard University in 1989. And, and then one of the funny things that ensued from that. Um, uh, was that Karpov heard that Kasparov had, had had come and he wanted to come the next year himself. And he sort of like invited himself to Harvard. And we said, okay, let's, you know, we'll, we'll be glad to do that. Like there's another, you know, world champion who wants to come. Why not? Like, let's organize it. And um, a couple of interesting things happened on that visit. I mean, for one, he played a game against Deep Thought, um, a public game against Deep Thought, where he was somewhat lucky to win, you know, to win an end game. Um, and that was, although it was a loss for the computer, it was, I think, you know, somewhat of a milestone in that it had done like, you know, it had played a reasonable game against like the best player that it had ever done that against, you know, it, it had beaten like Walter Brown before and so on, who's a great player, but but not a Karpov, you know, so yeah. um, holding his own against Karpov was was fascinating. Um, and, and then um, it was kind of funny at the time. I know they've, dro- they've long since dropped this, but it was funny to see up close the rivalry between Karpov and Kasparov. This was 1990. I think before Karpov played his last title match against Kasparov later that year, the famous 1990 match, well, they were all famous, but the, the famous 1990 match. Um, and so Karpov, in my memory, was really focused on pointing out flaws in Kasparov. And he even t- he told us at dinner that, um, you know, the test of time, Kasparov's, you know, famous book that, you know, I would love to reread myself and, and study in depth and so on. And, and some of your recent guests have talked about how, how you know, memorable it is. Um, the test of time was full of mistakes, and it was so full of mistakes that a candidate, a candidate master from Moscow, had sent Karpov like a ten-page list of all the mistakes in the test of time, and that Karpov would bother to tell us that, you know, at Harvard, having come all the way to Harvard University, you know, to tell us us twenty-one-year-old, you know, people like that the test of time was full of mistakes that even a candidate master could find. I just thought spoke to sort of like the intensity of the rivalry and maybe the hatred at that time, you know, between between the two of them. That was the time when Kasparov was calling Karpov a creature of darkness, you know, things like that, you know, and so on. And and now now it's all good now, you know, and so on. But that was the way it was back in the day, Um, you know. And then I've got to throw in, I've got to throw in, I'm going to keep on going with the stories if you don't stop me, but I got to throw in Anand because, um, uh, you know, as I mentioned before, I've I've been friends with Patrick Wolf um, for quite a long time, great, you know, chess player and um, really interesting guy and so on. He was one of Anand's, you know, seconds. 
um, for quite a while. And uh, Anand came to Cambridge, Massachusetts, where we lived at the time to study with, with um, Patrick to prepare, you know, for something, I forget what it was. Um, and uh, we brought him to a party, like like a grad <laughs> student party at Harvard or something like that, you know, while he was there. Um, and here he was like, you know, the number three player in the world at the time or whatever he was, you know, and, and so on. He hung out at the party and so on. And um, uh, he told me, I said, you know, I do these studies of chess experts, you know, and chess masters. And it'd really be cool if like you'd, you could come to our lab and I could run my chess experiments on you, which were things like memorizing chess positions, like sort of classic chess experiments and so on. But nobody as good as Anand that ever did any of my studies. And he said, OK, sure, I'll, I'll do it. And I, I said, um, oh, by the way, I'd also like you to sign your book for me because I like to collect autographs of books. And of course, this was his famous book, I believe, called something like C80, which was like a monograph on ECO code C80, the Marshall Gambit, you know, that, that Anand had written. It was before he had a collection of best games. And so he signed the book. I, I didn't bring it with me to the, the podcast here, but he signed the book something like to Chris, my soon to be inquisitor. <laughs> referring to the fact that I was going to be like testing him the next day. Unfortunately, then the next day, like he called up or Patrick called up and said, actually, like Vichy decided he doesn't want to do it, you know, or, or whatever. So I, I was this close. Like I was an oh, hour wow. being able to have like as a subject participant in my chess experiments, like one of the greatest geniuses of all time, you know, in, in chess, you know, as everybody recognizes. So that that close, but it didn't get him. That's amazing. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a bummer that it didn't end up happening. Very nice guy anyhow, though. He seemed, seemed like a lovely person from my limited interactions with him. And was it a fun party? I recall it that way, but I was hanging out with Anand at a party, you know, so in my memory, that would be great, you know? Yeah. You know, and it wasn't, it wasn't that he drank too much. That, that wasn't why he bailed the next day? I don't know if he drank at all. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, maybe, I, mean I, I always suspected maybe he was ever so slightly worried that, like, something would be found out about the way he thinks or the way he, you know, or something like that. But probably more likely, he just like wanted to focus on like the task he had come to town for, you know, preparing for whatever match or, or whatever he was doing with Patrick or something like that. And he just didn't want to take the time, you know. Yeah. But, yeah, but, that that does seem more likely. <laughs> but I had a little place in my mind for thinking like maybe he thought I could like I could like steal his secrets from his brain or something like that, you know, even though, of course, I couldn't. Yeah, it can't be done. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could, but I couldn't. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, th those were both great. Do you have any more? Or, is that, or I mean, you could always save one for part three, too. It's up, it's up to you. Maybe I'll be lucky and have a new story by then. But um, well, so someday we can talk about about Deep Blue, because at one time I was I was writing a book that I never finished writing about Deep Blue and the matches with Kasparov and so on. So that could be a whole separate topic. Or you could get someone like Murray Campbell to be a guest and he can go through it all with you from sort of the Deep Blue point of view. But um, but uh, I think I'm one of the few people who played a chess game with both Carlson and Caruana. That is one chess game with the two of them at once. I'm um, not to say I played them both because there are many people who played them both, but I played with them both at the same time. So, um, yeah, you did. You did tell this story on the first podcast. Oh, I did. Okay. Well, in that case, yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have remembered if I didn't, if I didn't re-listen. I, I mean, like I, I, and I feel like an old person who tells the same stories over and over. <laughs> like the full intelligence and the tactics and the calculation. You know? we, we all get there eventually, Chris. So. Yeah. Well, it was, I, it's, it's so salient for me because I blundered away. I blundered away this end game that we had like a dead drawn rook end game and I screwed it up. Like rook end games have never been my strong suit. So I'm never going to forget it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hear you. I mean, not not often you get to to rub elbows with guys like that. So no, it's with, like rubbing elbows, like we're sitting at the same board next to each other, you know. So yeah, 
<laughs> All right. Well, this has been this has been great as expected, Chris. Thank you. Thank you for for your insights and and the catching up. And yeah, good luck. Good luck with the chess. I'm 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 ready to come to a tournament too. So hopefully, when this is over, I'll I'll see you at one. Fine, we can actually meet in person. Or we'll or we'll get paired in the Twitter chess tournament playoffs or something like that. Yeah, I didn't. I lost to Dan Smith. Shout out to the poker legend Dan Smith. And two of my games, I couldn't get paired and that was enough to not get me not in the playoffs i was like four and one with two unpaired games and yeah that i mean uh, kind of, whatever what, what's that Dan smith make the playoffs yeah he's uh, yeah he's in i'll try to exact revenge then on, on your behalf okay yeah i mean that guy's he's had enough success so yeah, he's like a poker he's like one of the top five winners ever or something like that right in terms of like, yeah it's, it's like the non like having the fifth highest rating or something you know so uh, he, he's He's right up there. Yeah. Yeah. And great guy. Does a lot of charity stuff too. So, but nonetheless, I would have preferred to beat him. I think that these poker guys are trying to learn something completely new. That's, that's in many ways, much different from what their expertise is, is that there's so many of them getting into it. You know, it's like reverse from before when all the chess guys went to poker. Now the yeah. poker coming to chess, which is cool. Yeah. I mean, Dan at least grew up playing chess, but yeah, there's a lot of them that just seem to be picking it up as adults. Um, yeah. Well, they, um, I guess they want something even harder. Yeah, exactly. And they, they will get it. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to be as easy for them as yeah. Okay. So Chris, you're, you're on Twitter and you've got your website and anything else to link to? Um, I, uh, yeah, th- those are good. Shabri.com and at CF Shabri on Twitter. And you can also go to the invisible gorilla.com and learn more about our, our book too. Awesome. Okay. Well, thanks as always. This was fun. Yeah, same here. Uh, and uh, continued success with the podcast. I, I listened to pretty much every episode. Thank you. Appreciate it. Special thanks, as always, to my producer, Matthew Passy, and thanks to those who continue to help spread the word about Perpetual Chess. Positive reviews on podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, glowing comments on YouTube help people discover the show, as does telling a friend or sharing it on social media. Speaking of which, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at BennyFischel1, or join the Perpetual Chess Facebook group and continue the conversation about the latest interview. Sometimes the guests even weigh into these discussions. The Perpetual Chess Instagram page is back in action, so lots of ways to stay engaged, as they say. But most of all, of course, I want to thank those who provide financial support to the show, especially right now with all this COVID craziness going on in the world. Most of all, I want to thank Chessable for sponsoring the show and to everyone who kicks in via PayPal or the Perpetual Chess Patreon page. I also just put up a little donate directly link on the Perpetual Chess webpage where it says donate. But again, if you're not in a position to donate, I'm happy to have people listening and just enjoying the show. So without further ado, I'd like to give thanks to the people who helped make Perpetual Chess possible. I would like to give thanks to the following people and entities. Chessable.com, Quality Chess Books, the Capital City Chess Club, the Apprentice Twitch Channel, Andrew Alhaji, Andrew Bach, Austin Clough, Benjamin Porteau, Bill Sigler, Kathy Carr, Chad Oliver, the Chess Central's Chess Blog, Chris Flanagan, Dan O'Hanlon, Danny Davidson, David Schreiber, I am Dimitri Schneider, I am Eric Rosen, Faraz Sawaf, Gary Foreman, Greg Harst, Greg Natel, Greg Shahadi, Guven Manet, James Kennedy, Jens Green, John Jernigan, John Rockefeller, John Cromarty, John MacArthur, Kelly Palmer, Kevin O'Callaghan, Lucio Casada Silva, the law offices of Stuart Katz, LilaAnalysis.com for cloud-based Lila engine analysis, 
Michael Can, FM Michael Oblin, Mike Zelazny, Mr. Mike Shahadi, the famous Mr. Dodgy, Peter Zodi, Reuven Fisher, Seattle Chess Club, Stephen Martinez, Thomas Stanix, Thomas Tachenko, Todd Bryant of Strong Chess, Todd Kennedy, Wayne Beam, and I also would like to thank the following. Aaron Waffler, Ace Viega, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adrian Gutierrez, Alex Pejas, Andy Ryerson, FM Andre Terakov, Dr. Andrew Perry, Anita Deer, Barry Hessian, Better Chess Training, Bill Juniper, Bill Moran, Brad and Andy Rosen, Brett Howard Lynn, Brian Mullis, Chad Hilton, Dr. Charles Snodgrass, Chris Wainscott, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Shabri, Chris Lott, Christopher Wood, I am Christoph Zalecki, a.k.a. Chess Explained, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Costa Carras, Courtney Fry, Craig Mallon, Daniel Ginsburg, Daniel Naylor, Dave Saylor, David Bleskachek, David Cramley of Chessable.com, Dalen Shelton, Dirk Decker, Drake Domingue, Dwayne Edmonds, Ed Daly, Ethan Smith, Ian Mason, I am Elect, Donnie, Ariel, Fox Valley Chess Club, Francis Latart Lavoie, Frank Tortoris, MD, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Geert Vandervelt, Gerard Barta, Giovanni Russo, Hans Schu, Haris Srinivasan, Jacob Kovach, Jack Perry, James Aspinwall, James Bonastia, James Muir, Jason Woolham, Jadeep Chakrabarty, Jeff Anderson, Jeffrey Martello, Yep Hoyland, Jerry Wells, Jim Ratliff, JJ Snod, Dr. John Fallon, John Fernandez, John Fontaine, John Hartman, John Jeffrey, John McMurtry, Jonathan Slater, Jordan Goodwin, Jose Rodriguez, Justin Gardner, Jen Shahadi, Joel Rocky, John Thompson, GM, Josh Friedel, IM Kari Christensen, WGM Katarina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, Kevin Pryor, I am Kostya Kovutsky, Krishna Gopala Krishnan, Kyle McAvoy, Larry Ryforth, Laura Boyavsky, Martin Knudsen, Martin Krug, Matthew Passy, Matthew Tedesco of SeattleChessMeetup.org, Mechanics Institute Chess Club of San Francisco, Michael Allard, Michael Hudson, Miguel Araspide, Mike Clem, Mitchell Fabian, Nate Solon, Neil Bruce, Nigmat Mulajanov, Olaf Mueller-Michaels, GM Pascal Charbonneau, Passy Passanen, Paul Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Sweeney, Paulo Santana, Peter Lux, Randy Temple, Ricky Grijalva, Richard Hallenbeck, Robert Turner, Roy Yearwood, Ryan Berg, the Say Chess YouTube channel, Scott Doherty, Scott McKinnon, Sebastian Finsterwater, Shane Unger, Stefan Roller, WGM Tatyab Abrahamian, Tim Brennan, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Tom Edsel, Tomas Komanich, Tony Rotella, Tyrin Price, Vishnu Srikumar, William Brock, William Juniper, William Hogarth, William Peterson, FM Zhao Cheng of Chess1000.com, and last but never least, Zhivko Storyanov. Thanks for listening, everyone. I will catch you all next week. Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.